Lovely. Everybody's at the back. Isn't it wonderful? How supportive I feel this morning. Okay, so... um, uh, I had one of those phone calls from Steve. I don't know, probably you've had them. Steve phones you up one day and you think, oh, how lovely, he must be very interested in me. Steve gives me a little ring and he said, oh, Bob, how are you? I said, oh, very well, thank you. How are you? And he said, Bob, um, we'd like you to, to preach in a few weeks. I think, oh, lovely. He said, but, but we don't have a topic. Do you have anything you're thinking about? And then I made one of those mistakes because I actually answered a question honestly. You know what I mean, don't you? Rather than thinking, where is this going? I was thinking, okay. So I said, okay, well, what I'm really thinking about at the moment is mental health. That's what's taking up a lot of my time. He said, oh, that'd be brilliant, Bob, because we've been talking at elders about that, and, and Jesus, please do it. I thought, oh, brilliant. I can pre. Oh, no. I don't know anything about it. Everyone's going to expect me to be a professional. Oh, no. What do I do? I, I don't even know a verse. I haven't. I've, I've never heard a preach on mental health, have you? No? Where do I start? So anyway, that's, that's my start and introduction to this. Um, let me start with a verse, because that'll help me feel a little bit more confident. And uh, the first verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it says this, And we urge you, brothers, brothers to admonish the idle, I want to leave that to the side, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with us all. And as Christians, we want to encourage, help, and be patient, don't we? Those are three things I want to talk about. Well, after Steve had uh, dropped that bombshell, I thought, what do I do? So I started talking to everybody that I met about mental health. So I'd say, uh, good morning, David. Uh, by the way, Steve has asked me to preach on mental health. What, what do you know about it? What's your experience? And I'd say that to everybody that I meet. And it was interesting because everybody had a story. Everybody had a family member or somebody close to them or had been through depression. Everybody had a verse that they'd hold, held on to. Everybody had an experience of it. And I realised, actually, it was something really important for us to touch on as Christians. It really was. But it enabled me also to have lots of information. So a lot of what I'm going to say today is gathered together from those people. I do think it's a a difficult topic. I'm aware that I'm entering a minefield, and please understand I'm not an expert, okay? But I'm here today to try and talk about it from a biblical perspective, okay? I'm not a mental health expert. If if you want to hear about the mental health uh, field, then please ask a mental health practitioner, absolutely. But I just want to talk about it from a a, a biblical perspective. So I'm going to look at some biblical examples where we can draw out some biblical principles. I'm also just going to raise the issue a bit, because I don't know how much you know about it, so I'm going to talk about various statistics. I like maths. We all like a number, don't we? No. We all like a number, don't we? Ah, good. Feel a bit better there. We all like it. So we'll look at some statistics about mental health, um, and really what is the position in the UK in 2018. And then I'm going to try and give us some suggestions as a church. What do we do? How do we reach out? How do we support people who are going through a mental health difficulty at the time? What is the, how, is, how are we called as a church? And are there opportunities for us to reach out into this world? So that's my aim. 
all going to do that in 25 minutes. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, I am. Right, okay, so I'm going to start off with uh, a quote from this book. I don't know whether you've seen it. Uh, it's a relatively new one by Alan Snuggs. What a name. Alan Snuggs, I like him already. Um, Surrounded by Jesus, Confessions of a Flawed Christian. Um, he's somebody who was saved uh, under the ministry of David... No, in, in the charismatic movement with John Wimber. David Porter, no. Oh, right. anyway, a man called David, he was saved by. Oh, it'll come to me in the end. You see, I'm, I'm, what was that thing at the beginning about, about forgetting things? You see, names, names they go after a while, don't they? Yes, yes, David, David somebody. Anyway, um, he was saved under, under the kind of charismatic renewal ministry uh, in the early 70s. And it's his story through life and pastor, pastorship, I don't know if that's a word, um, and how he uh, works out his Christian life. And at one stage, in his 50s, he goes through a very difficult time. Um, and uh, anyway, he's, the, the context for this is he's gone to a new place um, and he has a new ministry in, in, in front of him. Uh, it got worse, he said. We found we had innumerable problems with our new flat. And we all know times when life just, everything gets worse, doesn't it? Everything. Well, listen to this. You name it, we had it. It flooded several times. We had legal disputes, parking disputes, faulty appliances, faulty windows, faulty everything. Even stuff we ordered to replace our lost possessions got lost or destroyed on the way. We actually counted 43 things that went wrong. It seemed we had more than just bad luck. Maybe in different circumstances I could have coped, but for whatever reason, I didn't. Some close friends have since told me that they worried about the toll my church pastoring had taken. They reckoned I'd been drained, sucked dry. Nicole, his wife, also felt that my depression had started much earlier than our move. I don't know if any of that's true myself, but I do know in that moment I felt utterly powerless to cope with what was being thrown at us. Whatever the cause, things got very dark. I started to feel physically ill, my stomach felt permanently knotted. I had panic attacks. I struggled to enjoy anything. And then I began to feel really guilty. I had dra dragged Nicole away from her job. We left friends. We'd left our church. We'd sold our lovely home and bought a problem property. We're in our mid-50s. This wasn't the time to be making these kind of mistakes. I started to wonder if I'd misheard God. How could he want us to go through this? Things got worse. I was encouraged to go to the local surgery and ask for antidepressants. The doctor had an aggressive and seeming uncaring attitude. Not like most of the National Health Service. Not at all. Okay, please don't hear that. But this, is, this was his experience. He put me on antidepressants from the medicine group called Selective Serotonin Uptake Inhibitors, inhibitors SSRIs but on a huge dose. His attitude seemed to be, well, if you want them, you can have them big time. It was then that my problems really started. For whatever reason, I reacted badly to the drug. It was only much later that I discovered I was the victim of a side effect that only about 1% of the population suffer when they're prescribed SSRIs. I had severe drug toxicity, which essentially means that you're slowly being poisoned and your body is closing down. But no one realized. 
In less than two weeks, I went from mildly depressed to seriously suicidal. I quickly developed psychotic depression, which means hallucinations and delusional thinking. At first, I couldn't settle at all and would pace relentlessly around our flat. Then I lost all my energy and could hardly get up at all. I retreated to bed whenever I could. I began to see strange things whirling around in my room. I honestly thought the police were watching me and at any moment I would be arrested. I couldn't laugh. In fact, I went months without even a smile. I sometimes forgot where I was and who I was. I developed a tremor so bad that I couldn't even put my cash card into a machine or hold a cup of coffee. I ground my teeth at at night. My muscles ached. My stomach bloated. I had trouble swallowing. I couldn't sleep. I had suicidal thoughts. I felt I had lost my faith. And above all, I felt utterly and deeply ashamed of my weakness. He was a pastor. Surely he could have coped, he felt. They said that antidepressants stopped the mind from dancing. In my case, they brought every sense to a crashing halt. I was no longer the man I used to be, not in any shape or form. I had to stop helping the church. I was referred to the local mental health team, but they just prescribed more drugs. They should have spotted that I was having a severe reaction, but they didn't. It all happened so quickly. It was horrific. When you have very bad depression, you suffer a triple whammy. Firstly, you feel lost. Secondly, no one has an idea how you feel. After all, it's not like they can see a broken body or the obvious physical symptoms. And finally, not only do some people not get it, but they often actually treat you with indifference. Let me give you a few examples. A long-standing colleague, a caring and decent man in most respects, told me that my problem was I didn't have enough faith. He informed me that I'd not faced enough difficulties in my life and I needed to toughen up. It was absolute nonsense. But because I was so low, I believed it all. This is a common trait amongst sufferers. Their already low self-esteem leads to them believe any criticism must be right. One of my friends stopped calling or communicating with me altogether. He later confessed that for years he had relied on me as a counsellor and that he just couldn't cope with the fact that I was ill. A close friend broke down in front of me and told me, I'm editing this one a bit, you look like poo. Um, (laughs) That was painful. Another church leader who I'd helped multiple, multiple times never contacted me again. And I'm going to stop the quote there because I could go on. And he does come through that, moving away, moving to a new place. And I'll say some of the things later that really helped him come through his deep depression. It's a really powerful description, isn't it, about how sometimes people can get things wrong with mental health, how people don't, don't know what to do. You know, sometimes I think those who are going through uh, a mental health difficulty... Um, As a society, we don't quite know how to help because sometimes they don't look lovely. Maybe they look dishevelled. Maybe they don't answer the questions. Maybe they don't smile at us. And we we don't know sometimes how to help. Even though we may want to, we, we think if we pray, it might be the wrong thing. If we give them a hug, they might not feel like being hugged. We're not sure what to do. So I want to try and give some guidance slightly later on that. But first of all... Um, let me uh, just have a look at some mental health statistics. So there should be some slides coming up behind me. 
The first one is from the Mind website, which has all sorts of information about mental health. Um, and there you will see, I hope you can see those words. Can you see them? Not at all, yes. Okay, anger, anxiety, bipolar disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, borderline personality disorder, depression, dissociative disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, loneliness, hypermania and mania, hoarding, hearing voices, eating problems, drugs and rec recreational drugs and alcohol, personality disorder, paranoia, phobias, self-harm, self-esteem, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychosis, stress, suicidal feelings. Now, there's a huge list there of not only mental health disorders or mental health issues, but also symptoms that we might notice. And it's a very helpful website if you want something just to look at to give you some information. So this is whole realm, a whole, whole kind of uh, gamut of different issues that people are suffering. So what are the, um, what's the extent of that in 2018? In the next slide, you'll see um, some issues to do with children and young people. That is frightening. So one in 10 children, 15, 5 to 16, have a diagnosable condition. That's one in 10. So there's teachers amongst you. That's three in every class. One in two of all mental health problems are established by the age of 14. So a lot of them happen very early in life. And three quarters of all mental health problems are established by the age of 24. So it really is, a lot of it is within the younger age group, but actually, I think, since this came out, which is 2016, there have been an increase in mental health issues all the way through the different age groups for various reasons. Okay, the next one. Increasing numbers of mental health problems. You'll see the increase from 1993 to 2014 in different categories. Now, it's my experience as a, as a professional, and a number of others have said to me, actually, the big increase has come between 2016 and 2018. It has increased out of all proportion, particularly with our young people. So it is a real issue today. I'm afraid it's not good news when I move over to the next slide, but I think it's important to look at it, isn't it? Suicide rates. In 2016, 5,688 suicides were recorded in Great Britain, three quarters male and a quarter female. What does it say to us? Where is our heart in that? Where is our heart that is God's heart in those statistics? How do we feel when we hear those? What is God calling us to? It's tough just mentioning them, I have to say. Right, let's keep going. Uh, the next one, those affected by mental health in any one year. 25% of the people in the UK will experience a mental health problem each year. That's a quarter of people. And 16.67%, which I think is just more than an eighth, mathematicians will tell me, um, of all people in England report experiencing a common mental health problem in any given week. So it is huge in our society. And today I can only really touch on one or two things, but this is something that we will need to, as a church and as Christians, deal with and think about in the years to come. We'll need to work out what our response is 
We'll need to be praying for those that raise up ministries to minister to those because the church has such an opportunity and a need to minister into these areas. So those are some sobering statistics. Those are just some things to get you thinking, some, to touch your heart and your mind and to see where God's heart is in it all. I'm now going to just look at the Bible because actually the Bible says so much more about mental health than I ever thought it did. And I'm going to look at two people, um, if you like, in parallel to look at mental health issues with the two of them. So I'm going to look at it, if you like, from a mental health perspective. The first one is Elijah and the second one is Legion. Okay? So, Elijah. I'm going to look Uh, if you're finding it in your Bible, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 8. So the key thing you'll know about, probably, probably about Elijah, is all the amazing miracles, but also the victory against the prophets of Baal, won't you? Remember that? So Elijah was in this amazing victory. He was the celebrity of the day for his amazing victory with the prophets of Baal in chapter 18. And the, and the prophetic insight he had about when it would rain and when it wouldn't rain. He was the celebrity in Israel. Chapter 19 is the day after. It's the letdown. And so often that's the case. That you have great highs one day and the next day. What happens? So here we go. This is the day after. Ahab, that's King Ahab, told Jezebel, Queen Jezebel... All that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, or more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow, threatening to kill Elijah. Then he was afraid. After all that victory the day before, he was now afraid from one comment. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. So he went on alone. Interesting. He went on alone. So much, so many times in mental health, that word alone will come up. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That word broom tree, I imagine it, one of those old brooms, don't you? Kind of three trees, three of those brooms stuck up. But I imagine it's probably an actual tree rather than just somebody um, putting a load of brooms in the middle of a wilderness. Anyway, that's just uh, the way I I look at the scripture. Um, So anyway, he he went into the wilderness, sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord. Take away my life from now no better than my father's. As he lay down and slept under the broom tree, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time to him and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 49 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So I'm just going to look through that and just ask some questions about it to look at that um, passage from a mental health perspective. 
Okay, so first of all, context. What was the context? This was the day after the great victory. That was the context. Was he alone? Here's my second question. Yes, he made himself alone. Somehow he ran away. He left his servant, who was probably his, his great friend, his confidant, the person who was with him all the time, and he ran away. He was running for his life into the desert. And, and metaphorically, you can see that. He was now in a desert place. What were the symptoms that he had, given that list of symptoms we talked about earlier? Fear. He was suddenly fearful, wasn't he? He felt cursed. He felt the curse of Jezebel. He was running away. Running away from something that he was fearing. He was suicidal. God, take me. I want to die now. He was hungry. And he was tired. So there were some physical symptoms as well. Let's not forget the link with those physical symptoms. Okay, diagnosis. Now, I'm not going to diagnose this, but I just think it's interesting for us to just have a look at it. What would your diagnosis be? What, what was he going through? I think he was going through an element of depression at that time. There was definitely an element of stress and anxiety. Maybe there was something deeper, but those are the ones I think that we pick up quickly from that passage. Isn't it interesting how quickly it came on. What was the cure? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, a lot of the cure was physical. It was rest, sleeping. It was food. And it was drink. There was a touch as well. That touch from the angel. It wasn't alone because he'd been touched. And an encouragement that came from the angel. Somebody else with him. He just felt that he wasn't alone quite so much. And my final question is, is, who was the healer? Well, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Okay, Yes, through the angel in the Old Testament, but it was the hope that he had in God. God was the one who broke in at that time. And pointing to Jesus is so important through all this. I might give you a different context to that. Many of you will have read that passage many times, but it's interesting, isn't it? Looking at it from that perspective. Um, I'm very aware of that highs and lows as well that great day that great victory so, so encouraged and the next day somehow it just feels all different the trust that he had in God with the prophets of Baal and then completely seemingly lose, losing his trust his faith okay let me look at another example. And this one definitely has some complexities to it. And those that know the whole story will know that I'm missing out the big bit with the pigs at the end. Okay, I think it's one that you referred to earlier. Um, Wally, I think you think you were referring to this passage. It's Mark 5, verses 1 to 13. If you'd like to have a look at that. Mark 5, verses 1 to... Actually, I'm not going to go to 13. The whole chapter goes to 13. I'm actually only going to go to 8. Um, just... Uh, for time. So we have to look, have a look at Mark 5, and this is Legion. Legion. Are you with me with Mark 5? Okay, so uh, Mark 5, uh, verse 1. 
They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gezerines. No, Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him, bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and change. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Self-harm, is that? Is that self-harm in the Bible? That is, isn't it? Self-harming. I might come to that a little bit later. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. As I'm going to stop it there. There is good news afterwards. Okay, he does get um, uh, delivered and healed, and then is there at the end of the story, in his right mind, and clothed and smiling. But I'm not going to go into that, because I've got the question about the pigs, and I'm trying to avoid the pigs. Um, those that know, know the story, I'm sure you're going to read about the pigs now, but we just thought I'd avoid that part. Okay, so let's just go through those same questions uh, with Legion. First of all, what was the context? Well, the context was different here, wasn't it? Because he was a man who was among the tombs. He was a man who had taken himself away from society. He'd been locked away from society, been chained up out of society. He was an outcast. He was the one that people would walk away from. If he was on one side of the road, they'd walk on the other side of the road to avoid him. So that was his context. And he was in the tombs of the dead. Yeah, he was in a graveyard. That was where he lived. Was he alone? Yes, he was alone, wasn't he? He was alone in the graveyard, despised, excluded from society. And probably not a nice person to look at or smell or be with. Somebody who had deep mental health concerns, wasn't it? This is somebody who was, had been struggling for a number of times. Let's have a look at the symptoms we see that he's recluse. We see this idea here of superhuman strength. And it's interesting, some of the discussions I've had, some people, when they have really dramatic mental health episodes, do have that, that experience of superhuman strength is there. There was wailing. He was hearing voices. He was fearful of Jesus. What are you going to do to me? There was an element of fear there. The other part that I, I quite like here is that actually there's a confused identity because he calls himself I and then he calls himself Legion and we. He's confused with his identity. He doesn't know who he is because of everything that's gone on. That goes back to the Ellen Snuggs thing as well, doesn't he? He lost his identity and his self-confidence in who he was. But here there is a, a difficulty with his identity. 
diagnosis. Well, I'm only going to get myself in trouble with this one, but I'm going to have a go, and please come with me. Um, I've read a couple of commentators on this. One has suggested bipolar, and this does seem to be a very extreme version, if that is what it is. But the one I quite like is PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder. And particularly, may maybe today, on Remembrance Day, it's something to mention. He could have been a soldier in the Jewish army. He could have been somebody who saw something horrendous. He experienced torture. He could have been somebody who had seen horrendous things happening in front of his eyes. And that just broke him. And that's the hint that some of the commentators have got from this passage. Actually, maybe he had the equivalent of PTSD. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was something else. What was the cure? Well, leaving the deliverance aside, there was human contact. There was conversation. When Jesus talked to you, you felt cared for, didn't you? You felt his kindness. Now, I'm just going to touch on the idea of deliverance just very briefly. I'm going to touch it from one perspective only, because this could take up the next six weeks. I'll get myself in all sorts of places. But just in terms of if somebody is struggling with their mental health, to suggest that deliverance might be needed to them, or to talk about um, somebody um, um, ha being, having a demon in them, or something like that, is so unhelpful. Because they are so low and struggling with things, that just isn't helpful. So can I just say, let's not have that discussion when you're talking or supporting somebody with mental health issues. It might be something that you might hand on to the elders or something like that and say, well, is there an issue here? But I'm trying to avoid that particular issue today. And I think in our communication, our support for those who are struggling with mental health, it's really important that we don't describe things that might make them more and more fearful. Okay. So, now I lost the rest of my notes, which will be here. Fant oh, they won't be there. Fantastic. So, where do we go from there? What do we talk about? We've, we've looked at the various ideas about um, mental health issues, the increase of those. We've looked at it in the Bible, and we've come out with some themes, haven't we? Come out with certain themes that are coming through. And I think that we are in a position as a church, and in a church in the UK, that is a, we have a huge opportunity. The statement that I've read from a, uh, somebody who runs a counselling service in the States said this, people are more likely, when they're struggling with their mental health, to talk to a pastor, and I'm going to add a Christian friend, than they are to go to a doctor or mental health professional. So they're more likely to talk to you for help than they are to go to a mental health professional. More likely to talk to you first. So you have an opportunity, I think, for those that you know, those in your family, those that you spend time with, to share the love of Jesus with them at a time when they need it. And I'm just going to go through a couple of things, suggestions, with those to finish off. So this is my question. What can we do as a church to support those with mental health problems or disorders? What can we do when people are in that pit of depression, when people come to you and say, I'm feeling suicidal? Because it, it does happen, doesn't it? 
When, when we hear somebody has started to self-harm, what do we do? And here are a few suggestions. My first one is one-anothering. It's what we do so well as a church. John chapter 13, verse 34 says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Galatians 6, 2 says this, Bear with one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law. And there's a number of one-anothering verses in the New Testament. Pray for one another. Support one another. So many of those one-anotherings. And that is perhaps what I would call um, cup of tea support. It's about just showing kindness and friendship. It's not maybe talking about deep things, but it might be just sitting down and said, oh, let's have a cup of tea. Let's, let's have a chat. Notice, in the Elijah story, it was about food and drink as well as the rest, wasn't it? It was about those, those practical, physical things that helped him. So sitting down and just talking to somebody, you know, maybe it's saying, God, did you listen to the football? And you know, you might be the first person that day who's spoken to them with a smile on their face and not asked them to do something. It's that one another, it's that support that we do so well as a church, and that's important within the church, but also reaching out to others, to our friends, to our relatives. And I think with that, not being frightened to say something. One of the worst things we can do, and you'll notice this with what Alan Snug said, is to ignore people, to avoid them, but to go up and talk to them. Even if you don't get much response, a smile, maybe a hand on the shoulder if you think that's appropriate, is a great thing to do. Alan Snug's the, uh, the pastor I read about, said the, there were a number of things that made a big difference to him that helped him come out of his deep depression. And I thought these might be interesting. There was a, a friend at church who, was, who, who struggled themselves with physical touch. They were, they were quite cl- closed in themselves. They weren't a very huggy person. And one day, that friend came up to him and just gave him a big hug. Just a hug. That was it. Now, I think there are times to hug and not to hug. That is the question. There are times to hug and not to hug. But... I think just that element of physical touch can be so important. There were a number of people who prayed silently for him. They didn't go up and say, oh, time for ministry, brother. Okay, let's go to pray for you. I know what I'm going to do here. No, no, no. Just silently praying for him. I'm just praying for you, just so you know. I'm just praying for you. I'm encouraging you. And that silent prayer is so important. This is one I absolutely love. And particularly for those who are supporting members of their family. And it makes me emotional just thinking about it. He had a son who had kind of given up on church. And he knew his dad was struggling. And one day he said, look dad, I don't often pray anymore, but can I pray for you? And he put his arm on his shoulder and he prayed for him. And that meant so much. Because his son was getting over all his issues that he'd had with church and his dad being a pastor, all those kind of things, to minister to him. Right. Um... There was another time when he was uh, on a long walk with his wife. He went to uh, Alan, he went up to uh, Wales, a beautiful uh, place where he was going up and down the mountains and he he was going for a walk and suddenly everything closed in. And so in the middle of this trail with lots of people walking around him, he collapsed on the ground and just cried. And you can imagine his wife saying, get up, people are watching. Come on, get moving. What do you expect? Come on. But she didn't in that moment. 
In that moment, she sat down next to him and she hugged him. And she stayed there with him for the time that he needed to go through that. And that was a huge healing process. The other thing that really made a difference is when he moved somewhere else, he went to a men's group. And this men's group, when he came in, they welcomed him. They didn't say, oh, you're looking a bit strange, or you look a bit down, or are you sure you should be here, or where do you live? They just welcomed him. And that welcome from a new group of people really changed him. Now, all those are very simple things, aren't they? There are things that you and I can do with our friends and our relatives and our neighbours that we're praying for and encouraging. And what I find interesting about the one anothering is it's not a pastor's job, is it? It's about us together as the community of God, supporting each other and supporting those that we meet. I think the second part of this um, is about hope. And if you know Jesus, you know that you have a sure and certain hope, don't you? You know that you have a friend that stays close than the brother. And you have that hope. And sometimes in you, you may talk about it a lot. Sometimes it may be deeply in your heart. But you have a hope. And sometimes, particularly for people who are maybe in depression or going through some of the thoughts that we've talked about, that sense of hope is missing and is gone. And that's something that we as Christians have in abundance. We have a hope and a future, don't we? We know that Jesus is the hope of the world. And we know really that we have what the world desires, which is that close relationship with our Father. And I think sometimes we we forget about the difference that Jesus has made to us. The knowledge that we know him, that whatever we're going through, a deep pit of despair, the best time that we've got a friend next to us who is there with us, encouraging us. We know that by his death and resurrection, we get something wrong, we can come to him and he'll forgive us. We know we've got that with us. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is a living hope and he lives in us. And we have such a hope to share to the world. I hope it's been helpful this morning in giving some information, in, in talking through various things and giving some hints and tips. I think this is a huge topic. I'm sure that it will come back to it in, in different stages. And uh, I don't know how we finish today, but I wonder if we just all stand. And I'm just wondering whether you want to picture somebody in your mind somebody who you know is struggling at the moment, maybe somebody that you uh, want to reach out to, maybe a neighbour, a friend. And then I'm just going to pray in a minute. So just, just picture that person in your mind. Lord Jesus, I thank you 
that you give us a hope and a future. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, you've called us on this earth to mission, Lord. Not just to enjoy fellowship with you, but to share it with others. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help each one of us, Lord, to be better friends, Lord, to be better family members, Lord, to be those that can reach out with your love and kindness. Lord, help us to get it right. Lord, help us to know when to pray and not to pray. Lord, help us know when to touch and not to touch, to hug and not to hug. Lord Jesus, help us to be those that can show your kindness. Lord, will you change our hearts, Lord, if it's a time when we have those that we just struggle with and want to walk the other way. Lord, will you change our hearts for them? Lord, we want to see your kingdom grow in this place here in Herne Bay, Lord. We want to see you reaching out, Lord, to the lost and to the broken, to those in the depths of despair. Lord Jesus, we want to see your victory in this place. And Lord, use us, Lord. We ask you to do that, Lord. This week, will you use us to be that, to have that word of kindness, to be Jesus to somebody. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.